This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Resource Refreshes. William Playfair. Updating Earth Dawn. And Gustavus Adolphus. Hopping vampires tried to stop it. Transformed animals conspired to block it. Evil eunuchs issued proclamations against it. Armani-clad assassins put it in their crosshairs. Laudably virtuous monks considered a possible threat to spiritual discipline. But thanks to the gun-toting, fist-flying efforts of your favorite scrappy underdogs at Atlas Games, Feng Shui 2... Robin's acclaimed and recently improved Game of Action Thrills has been reprinted and is again headed to stores. Import the excitement of the Hong Kong Action Cinema Masters to your role-playing table. And when in doubt, do as the jammers do. And blow things up. Blow things up. Blow things up. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And uh, the miniatures are buffed, the Doritos bowl is full, the dice are sparkling, and Peter Frampton is indeed coming alive because we're going to talk about refreshes and full rests and eating your iron rations, but they're so good they taste like, I don't know. <laughs> Copper rations, or maybe right. even, dare we hope, platinum rations? I don't know. How do the PCs restore their resources in-game? Uh, Robin, I believe that you have the floor, the con, and uh, the cheese plate. Right. Uh, because uh, Gumshoe, of course, is very much a resource-oriented game, and it does so to an extent that some people need a little extra help uh, figuring out how to manage the timing of uh, refreshes. So the idea of any resource game is to, first of all, it, it's all about moment control, right? That you, yeah. whether it's your ability to cast the giant fireball that resolves a particular encounter in your favor or the uh, option to uh, suddenly uh, have in your bag exactly the thing that you need with a preparedness uh, test in Gumshoe. It's all about making sure that your big moments feel like big moments because you don't get to do them all the time. They're, they're special. And it's uh, therefore also about spotlight control, that a game that cares about balance between characters, which of course not all role-playing games do, will ensure that everybody gets an equivalent pool of resources to draw on so that they get to shine at different times. Now, D&D, for example, doesn't always concern itself with that, or it's spotlight abilities change at different levels but so, it is uh as as our most f20 games still about resources because uh ever since the old um how many spell slots can you memorize days you've got a certain number of uh of magic items and uses and spells and things uh that you can use during a given dungeon delve and they will come back uh, at sort of arbitrary times in old, uh, D and D and it's been refined and, uh, and milled down until by 4e, we all had daily powers and per battle powers and at will powers. And it was all very, 
uh, mechanized and laid out neatly like a bunch of, uh, like a ratchet set. Um, and, uh, I'm running an F20 game right now, 13th age, and I can promise you that, uh, resource management is still a thing, especially when the player characters realize that they are stuck in the middle of the steading of the frost giant king and have to find a place to hide to get that coveted long refresh or be stamped into giant paste. Right. So the question is when to afford your players the opportunity to uh, uh, do that refresh. Now, uh, as you suggest, 4E uh, makes time a resource, uh, but time, as we have discussed in the past and we'll discuss in the future, is somewhat fungible in a role-playing yeah. game. It's a, so the limitations of time, it's not a hard, consistent uh, resource. So, for example, uh, a gumshoe resource uh, refresh, pool refreshes of your general abilities, doesn't give you a particular uh, time frame in which you recover your abilities uh, because the point of having characters deplete and then replenish resources is to have them feel that they are under pressure, but then it hits a tipping point where they're under so much pressure that they're not going to be able to succeed as their equivalent characters would be able to then do at the end of a... Uh, an adventure uh, novel or or film. And so you don't want just a steady uh, depletion, but you also want them to feel that the things that they're doing have a cost. And so the question then becomes, does your stopping to rest also have a cost of some kind? And the implication is that a time limit has a cost, but again, time is, is not really a cost or it's a cost that's often paid uh, by the GM because uh, she's trying to fix the pace and all of a sudden you had this exciting thing going and then, well, okay, well, I guess we're all going to go to the sanitarium for a day and just hang out and uh, drink some tea and, you know, get our sanity back. That isn't uh, so appealing, but it's also very unappealing to have the pacing broken by having the characters uh, unable to continue. Right. So, Ken, when do you uh, feel the best time is in terms of a character's resource depletion to give them uh, an opportunity to uh, rest? And should that opportunity also uh, have a price tag on it of some kind? I mean, this is sort of, uh, it's very much a table rhythm question in my experience, whether it's Gumshoe or F20 or other games. I find that a combination of diegetic moments of refreshment, like the Haven rule in uh, Knights Black Agents, uh, where if you can hold up, you can restore some, uh, some, some much needed, uh, general ability points, or whether it's just the sense that this is a moment at which everyone can, can take a time, uh, because the, the rhythm of the story has led you that way, because the goal at the table and the goal and something that I accomplish, I think more often than not is to make the actual adventure part harrowing enough that there is always that moment of doubt. Did we pack enough? Do we have enough, you know, spells or ammo or, or hit points or whatever it happens to be to get through the thing. And sometimes, you know, the players out clever you and they, and they waltz right through something that was supposed to be tense and harrowing, but it's hard uh, to stay mad. It's easy to get mad, but it's hard to stay mad at players being smart and playing the game. Well, because that implies fun is being had of some sort. So, it's a constant balancing act. And in my experience, 
doing it diegetically while keeping sort of a second eye on table culture is the best compromise that I've found that if you stick to a, a metronomic, uh, day night clock or whatever, as you say, it interrupts the, the, the rhythm at the table. And if you just ignore the question entirely, then it stops being, uh, a game of resource management. And if the game is built on that, which a lot of games are, uh, then you're, uh, you're kind of stuck. I think that a lot of games, uh, now do, uh, points per scene, as an attempt to compromise around it. That's the uh, Bennies from uh, Savage World sort of act that way, fate points, other things like that, such that uh, the notion is to keep a constant drip of entirely meta points coming into the game so that you can sort of have a, a series of micro climaxes, ideally one or two at the table per session. Um, and then uh, that can work, but, but again, the, the GM sort of has to, be able to play into that rhythm as opposed to the other rhythms of, of say, Gumshoe or 13th Age or whatever. And by diegetic, what you mean is that there's a natural stopping point where the characters, you know, could come to right, the it end. comes out of the story. It's a point where we've made it to the, to the cannibal shack. It seems to be empty. Let's bar up the windows and then let's take stock. And the end then let's take stock can be a moment to, you know, uh, bandage each other up from all their cannibal bites, or it can be to restore their spells and pray to the God of not liking cannibals and, and whatever it happens to be that in the story sense that gives you a thing. Or if in the story you're taking a long train trip to some other place, it makes sense that over the course of the train trip, you'd heal up or you'd study the magic book or, or something would happen that would allow you that sort of montage sequence of, you know, getting ready for the big fight at the end of the train trip. So the, the diegetic opportunity for a, pool refreshing or resource uh, refreshing is story driven, meaning mostly kind of GM driven. Yeah. I mean, ideally if the GM doesn't keep at least one hand on it, whether it's a, a tight hand of the reins or a loose hand of the reins, it can wind up, you know, smacking them in the face. So you have to be able at the table to offer something diegetically and then not be in a position where the, the system or the table is so out of control that you lose control of the pacing and the game gets slack or the game uh, in a table with less aggressive players uh, becomes too fatal too soon. Right. And the, the next kind of refresh opportunity, conversely, is player driven. So mm -hmm. suddenly everyone will look around and go, man, we've had the had the snot kicked out of us. We're running low on hit points and we don't have the sleep spell. We don't have the fireball spell or in gumshoe. We're all out of points we'd better retreat and find a place to go and refresh. Um, mm -hmm. And that also uh, works really well because I, um, uh, you're paying the emotional cost of admitting that you have to go and lick your wounds for a while. Mm -hmm. And and that's uh, great because it's player-driven. And in D&D, uh, &D, you sort of have the do, do we go one encounter over the line question. That mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're going to have to retreat from the dungeon, go back to town, but do we do one more encounter, one not? So that offers sort of a price either way. Um, if uh, most D&D uh, &D, uh, DMs don't do this, but you could also create the sense that uh, leaving for a while also has a cost, right? That you yeah. come back then a couple days later and, oh, look what, that that uh, really exciting looking bronze door that you were going to go through, uh, it's been pulled off its hinges and uh, someone's clearly taken the bronze back to town to sell it. And, mm -hmm. oh, look, there's... Icor splatter on the wall, and uh, oh, there's the, the spot where clearly there was a 
a treasure hoard. There's still a couple of coins there. And there's, um, a, and there's a note written on the wall in High Elvish, uh, in your dungeon, getting your XP. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and of course, uh, you might make that a real cost where it's like, well, we were there to find the wand that was in that room. And now we're going to have to go and get it back from those stupid elves. Or you can just create the emotional feeling of you snooze, you lose. Right. Right. So that, and in, uh, and in a, a, a Call of Cthulhu game, or a game run by someone who ran Call of Cthulhu for eight years at a formative age, what happens often is that the the dungeon or the threat grows back if you're not there to, you know, be spraying flamethrower on it. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that I enjoy in a, in a dungeon, not so much that there's a rival dungeoning party that will do you out of your valuable wands and XP. That makes no that sense in Call of Cthulhu. You're the right. Thing in the, the thing in the bottom of the, of the dungeon, the Dark Lord or Dragon or whatever it is, repairs their defenses because now you don't have the advantage of surprise. You've, you've lost that by pulling out and going back to town and the dragon's like, oh, well, I did not see that back door as a problem. Well, now I'm going to staff it with a Dracolich and a bunch of salamanders and a team of kobold archers. And that should fix that problem. And when you go back into the dungeon, your your narrative consequence for having left the dungeon half delved is that the dungeon has, you know, woken up and now it's ready for you. And so the, the second push, you may start from a little farther in, uh, but it's going to be harder because everything's awake and knows that there's delvers afoot. Now, uh, sometimes players can be too fatalistic and just go, well, we're out of resources, but we got to keep going. And... If you uh, look at their sheets and realize that everybody is depleted of uh, whatever resource it is that they need, but they're going to go ahead, uh, they may not be at a point in the narrative where they're going to, uh, you haven't planned for them to get on a train where logically they would refresh their points, or you may not have decided to put an empty cannibal shack uh, there ready for them to board up, but you may uh, realize that everybody's running low and have to uh, then uh, sort of spontaneously come up with uh, some uh, way of getting them their their points refreshed. So you could suddenly, uh, you know, could be the the nice uh, folk from the the family uh, living on the farm uh, next to the cannibals uh, uh, comes over and invites you all over for a, a chicken and dumplings, or you know, you run into some gnomes who uh, invite you to uh, to drink their healing potion because they're you know their their gnome philosophy. Uh, requires them to dispense uh, healing or, or whatever it is so that uh, you can make sure that your players are caught up when they're not necessarily uh, thinking of it. Um, one instance, though, when not to do that is in a game where everybody's resources are roughly equal. So, for example, in D&D, everybody has hit points, but not everybody recovers spells. So right. this advice doesn't apply so much to that because an asymmetry is kind of built into that model. But uh, for example, in Gumshoe, if you see that everybody has spent all of their points and they're not asking for an opportunity for a spontaneous refresh, it uh, is probably smart to arrange one for them because the, the point of Gumshoe is to allocate spotlight time rather than to make sure that it's a slow slog of attrition. So if everybody spent all their points, their spotlight time has presumably been evenly distributed and a uh, spontaneous opportunity for refresh uh, should be something that you want to supply to them. On the other hand, if you see that one player has already used up all of her points and everybody else is still sitting on their points and their points are associated with abilities 
are actually useful in this scenario, right? If you, you don't look, if you know there's no horse riding and everybody's still <laughs> got their full riding pools, well, that's irrelevant to, to this yeah. particular scenario. But if somebody's been eagerly spending all their points and everybody else has been carefully saving them, well, that character is just going to have to face the consequences of front-loading all of her spotlight time, and that, that right. makes absolute sense. They will either have to sort of hang back or they'll have to start trusting to native player ingenuity, and both of those are fine choices. Um, one thing that you can do is make the reward, the, the opportunity to refresh, the consequence of that one last fight. So there's gnomes with healing potions, but they're uh, being led away by a bunch of ogres who hate them and want to eat them. And so if you can just kill that one last batch of ogres, the gnomes are will, will reward you with healing potions and... Oh, we, I don't know. We have enough points and it becomes a, a, a tactical question or the, the farmer with his, uh, and, and one assumes in a cannibal scenario that he's a vegetarian farmer offering you nothing but delicious pumpkin soup <laughs> as opposed to, uh, meat, yes. of course. Uh, that's um, pumpkin soup, not bumpkin soup. Right. Yes. He's, um, uh, you know, his family is menaced by one uh, big cannibal great uncle who is there, you know, drooling and snapping. And, and the players have to say, oh, my God, we got no firearms points left. We've got no unarmed combat points. We got no weapons points. How are we going to bring this guy down? Uh, do we rush him and risk getting our arms bitten off? Do we uh, do we out clever him? And then you have one last challenge to overcome before you get to the reward. And that is, you know, in the in the in mid dungeon, a lot of times that can be. Well, according to your precognition or the map or some other thing, there's an area right here that looks like it would be a possible place to rest up, but it's through this dangerous looking crevasse. Do you go through the crevasse or do you not? And then they have the decision to make, oh, do we rest up there? Or do we fort up here in the not as good resting place? And by making it a tactical choice and by ideally causing them to risk it in in uh, a last expenditure of, of even the seemingly useless spells or, or abilities. Can I use writing to stampede the horses and distract that cannibal great uncle? Yes, you can. Then they will uh, be able to feel like they've earned that, that rest in a way that just the, oh, it's midnight, all my spells came back, is less conducive to. Well, I said before that time is not clearly a resource uh, in gaming, but it certainly is in podcasting, where segments uh, have a have a set pool of minutes that they're allowed to be. So uh, I think we may uh, need to take a, a rest uh, during this commercial and come back with our points fully refreshed. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one -one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head -head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. 
The wax seal on the secret envelope tells us that we're not only in the tradecraft hut, but in, uh, once again, a historical tradecraft hut, where Ken, uh, once again, we're going to explore the principle that uh, basically everybody famous in England, and in this case, uh, Scotland, who has some level of uh, social status and education, is also a spy. Yeah. So uh, uh, Daniel Defoe, Christopher Marlowe, um, I'm pretty sure Simon Rogers, uh, clearly also a spy, Lynn Hardy, spy, James Wallace, spy. I think, uh, you know, they're all spies. Uh, but they're this all time, spies. Every last one of them. Yeah. And in this case, let us say Gregor Hutton, spy, because we're going to go- Spy, because he's Scots. Uh, to the Scots, uh, because we're going to talk about William Playfair. Uh, he is now famous as the inventor of uh, all of your favorite charts. Uh, not yep. just the pie chart, uh, but also he had a big year in 1786. He invented the line chart, the area chart, and the bar chart. And then in 1801, he invented the pie chart and the circle chart. So um, except for the Venn diagram, possibly the uh, most comedy friendly of all charts, he invented them all. And did he call them yeah. the Playfair chart? No, he did not. Because yeah, he, he, he invented principles of economics that are named for entirely other guys in an entirely other century. That's how diffident our buddy William Playfair was. And that's what being lowborn gets you in Scotland, even during the Scottish Enlightenment. Well, he might have been lowborn, but he was born into a learned family. His father was a reverend and his uh, brothers included a mathematician and an architect. And he was an engineer and political economist because uh, mm -hmm. back then you couldn't just be one thing. You had to be six. Well, he was a he was a bunch of things. He was also an inventor. He was a silversmith. He uh, ran an investment brokerage firm. He uh, was a land speculator. Um, he was a prisoner for a time, which has something to do with the land speculating. He basically invented the CIA world Factbook model where you come up with everything that is uh, publicly known about a country and you put it in one book so that uh, everyone can sort of uh, compare and contrast all the countries. Uh, he invented the who's who. He invented the basically the sort of dictionary of national biography uh, style thing. He was he was quite a guy, uh, put together a lot of stuff um, and also uh, was the editor uh, of the second edition of the Wealth of Nations in which he said to uh, Adam Smith, yeah, wealth is all very well and good, but can you keep it, boy? And Adam Smith <laughs> said, oh, my goodness, I thought that just being nice meant you could keep it. And he's like, you're not even Scots anymore, Adam Smith. I don't even know you. <laughs> you're not doer enough. You're not doer enough. Being nice. Wah, wished. Um, and so he wrote um, uh, an inquiry into the permanent causes of the decline and fall of powerful and wealthy nations uh, designed to shew how the prosperity of the British Empire may be prolonged, uh, in which he foreshadowed Ricardo's uh, discovery of comparative advantage. He's quite a guy. Right. Um, you, you read about Playfair even outside the spying, and he's got four or five different careers going on all at the same time. Right. People give Jeremy Bentham credit for stuff that he came up with. But, uh, but we're going to look at an instance where he took his theoretical uh, questioning of how governments and, and, and power uh, ebbs away and falls and look at uh, an example of how he uh, uh, decided to chip away at the power of a rival nation. And this was France uh, during the French Revolution. So uh, he, though, though no aristocrat, he uh, did not uh, uh, cotton 
uh, to the uh, upending of, of power that was going on. In he was the, uh, he was okay with the upending of power. There is some report that he was a participant in the fall of the Bastille, but what he didn't like was all the murdering that happened right after power got upended. He thought that once you were upended, you would pick yourself up and dust yourself up and say, well, fair played, middle class. I guess we'll go off to our retirement and uh, did not so much enjoy all the reigning of terror. So he was rescuing the uh, the fine principles of the revolution then from the uh, from the bloodthirsty uh, types who tend to take over when disorder yeah, ends. after revolutions. So um, what sort of spying did he get up to? Well, uh, th- he, the reason he was in France in the first place is because he'd written that pamphlet about, um, or the commercial and political atlas in 1786 that invented uh, all those lovely graphs. And the king of France loved that book because it meant that a dotard like the king of France could understand at least something about his economy, which he never could. And so the king of France sponsored a translation of the book into French. So it was economics for dummies. And and welcomed Playfair to court. uh, And Playfair used that opportunity then to take copious notes about everything that he knew about the French economy and send it back to England. Uh, Basically, he pioneered open source intelligence in a way. Uh, And mostly by putting it in a format that could be digested by government bureaucrats. So on a definitional level, does does that even really count so much as spying? I mean, that's that's sort of the question that, that historians of intelligence, and by historians, I mean Bruce Berkowitz, the only historian of intelligence who looked into this guy, <laughs> ask. But the... Uh, the, the line to actual spying is crossed after the French Revolution begins when he is continuing that career and is, uh, uh, caught at it and told to get the hell out of France. And a- on his way out of France, buddies up to a guy on the border in Belgium waiting for the boat. And the guy is bragging about how he worked at one of the, uh, heliograph semaphore stations in France. And uh, wouldn't you like to know how it worked? And William Playfair probably played, well, I'm just a, a simple Scots minister's son. What would I know about heliographs? And yeah. got him basically to give him a full schematic and model of the heliograph, which he then, of course, sent back to London. So that's that's legitimate spy work. A, a purloined schematic, uh, definitely espionage in my book. Yes. And then, um, you know, you if you steal a top secret technology and use your Scots engineering gifts to uh, make a blueprint and a model and send it out, that's spying. Yep. And it's that sort of service that got the British government interested when he said, you know how I was calculating what would happen if you just let inflation run crazy? What if we let inflation run crazy in France by counterfeiting the French paper currency called the Assignat? And uh, it, there was indeed an operation set up at, I want to say... Houghton Castle. It was in a castle. It was Houghton Castle. And they built printing presses and forged the assignats and put uh, lots and lots of uh, British government paper resources into it. And uh, then they would give the big boxes of fake assignats to the British Navy to drop off on the coast or to give to French underground forces. And sometimes they would pay French mercenaries with the fake assignats to put them into circulation in France. Now, So this did happen, but even William Playfair had to admit that, you know, his efforts perhaps were bootless, given that all revolutionary governments inflate their currency into worthlessness. Uh, So uh, by the end of the Assignat period in uh, 1796, no, in 1794, 
there were 8 billion assignats in print. That is many more than William Playfair did. And so when the fact that the assignat drops to a quarter of a percent of its face value, some of that can be devoted to Playfair, who certainly gave value for money, but some of it is just the habits of revolutionary governments of inflating their way out of problems. And um, that, I think, is, you know, it, it's it's an example of where even William Playfair didn't understand how insane uh, things could get, uh, which is odd, given that he narrowly avoided prison for involving himself in a post-American Revolution land speculation that was basically driven by the same problem uh, with the continental dollar. Uh, well, there were there were fewer examples to draw on back right. then. Right. There was just the one revolution at the time, and he said, well, that seemed to work out all right. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and when there's the prospect of financial reward for you, other intellectual processes that allow you to uh, evaluate uh, risk and reward uh, may tromp on in and, uh, and yep. mix you up a bit and perhaps even render you momentarily undoer. Yes. And, and given, you know, that uh, Playfair, you know, he didn't just take the money uh, and hide it and say, nope, it's my job that made the French inflate their currency to worthlessness. He, he did his he did his part. But there we are. But, you know. but it was a drop in the bucket. Right. Yeah. But certainly the uh, process of printing uh, fake currency and then smuggling it into a, a country in order to subvert it is rich in adventure opportunity. Right. That he oh, can yes. Assign the player characters to smuggle the, the assignats in and uh they don't have to know that they're uh, uh, that the macroeconomics will take care of that for them. Uh, they get all sorts of fun danger and stuff, or it can just be a, a side note as they're you know the heading on in to assist uh, the, the uh, counter revolutionary forces or to act as yes. mercenaries or what have you. And in a uh, sort of a more magical version of uh, of history, uh, he could represent uh, with his charts and graphs the uh, force of rationality attempting to. Uh, tamp down the uh, out-of-control, uh, bloodthirsty, magical forces that have uh, uh, run yes. riot in the revolution. He, he, would, he would be representing Urizen versus released orc if you're sticking with the Blakian cosmos that, uh, that we've been steeped in recently. And I should point out that later on in the Napoleonic Wars, when the British government started having to issue paper currency, he started a bank to issue paper currency, and the Bank of England was like, oh, no, we saw that movie. You are going to prison. <laughs> yes, and he, I'm sure he said, well, there's there's nothing to fear if you're not inflating your currency with paper. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. So, um, uh, so he, um, he, he had to, he had to uh, have a timeout. Um, but I, I, another thing that if you're talking about magic, obviously, given his really remarkable ability to synthesize data into visual formats, I think that you could make an argument that among his many talents would be designing magical sigils and that the Playfair sigils become sort of this brilliant uh, methodology by which uh, you can encode a magical spell down to a, a smaller level and Playfair's uh, technology it can either be a lost technology that was hushed up during the Napoleonic Wars and you're uncovering it today in your modern era, or it can be if you're playing a cool uh, Scarlet Pimpernelli game of of cocked hats and and uh, cocked pistols, uh, then you uh, can be using the Playfair ciphers and it's access to the uh, the Playfair sigils that uh, make it possible for you to to cast spells at all. Right, because what is a pie chart but a a protective circle that contains 
uh, and uh, and bounds information. So uh, he may well have found a way to reduce uh, various demons or spirits or elementals uh, into their informational form. And uh, if you can find uh, his original uh, pie chart, he might have just you know been using those for arcane purposes, and then afterwards, oh yeah, this would also be a good diagram and an economics paper. But Let's you measure exports, right? But this particular well. one, uh, you know, contains uh, a malign uh, butter elemental uh, that if we let it uh, get out of control, it will get uh, go rancid and, and run riot all, all over the place or, uh, uh, you know, a more conventional demon if you want to yes. do that. You and, and you can bring in his his brother, you know, John Playfair, who's the mathematician. And so he's doing the hard Kabbalah of breaking it down. And then William Playfair has to has to bind it up. So it's a it's a brother's operation. Also, he was James Watts apprentice for a while, an assistant. So he's an inventor. So you, he could be making you your magical gadgets that in their coiled springs and whatnot uh, encompass his uh, ability to to harness magic uh, graphically. Well, it sounds with the Playfairs that we have half of a. A player character group already and uh we'll need to bring in some more uh, uh women to flesh out the group and so we can find the uh women in their circle who can uh, do uh, other exciting fun cool things and uh we've got ourselves a, a game of uh, uh espionage and uh, containing magical forces through the power of diagrams and i've just uh seen however a diagram that suggests that we need to move uh, through this exciting commercial message to whatever segment lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Put yourself on the beneficent side of the Keeping This Podcast Alive chart by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Keelan O'Hay, Urs Blumentritt, Jacques de Villiers, Nate Merritt, and Dan O'Hanlon. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer, beloved Patreon backer Lars asks, mostly Robin... I love one of the role-playing systems that Robin wrote for back in the ancient days of yore, FASA Games' magnificent F-20 game, Earth Dawn. In fact, I love it so much that I've made a piece of character handler software for its second edition still available for the amazing price of free at secondstep.dk. A link, no doubt, will appear in the show notes. However... No, it won't. Just, just, listen to the, just listen to what you've said, Ken. There's, there's no link in the show notes. There's no link in the show notes. 
However, the system does seem a little dated. Uh, how would you implement such modern things as bennies or fate points or player narrative control? Robin, since you wrote for and one assumes played Earth Dawn, which puts you two up on me, I feel like this is one of those segments where I say, indeed, and <laughs> tell me more, Robin. Well, p- perhaps you can join in then in the uh, semantic digression that we that I want to lead off with, which is... Oh, thank God. <laughs> now now we're on Ken's turf. Yes, exactly. Uh, which is, is Earth Dawn, in fact, an F20 game, or is it a, another sort of game that is a response to F20 and is in dialogue with it? Uh, and... As the person who came up with the term F20, I feel I'm, I'm well qualified to at least uh, throw this question uh, out into the ring because a uh, little bit of history for those of you who don't know Earth Dawn. Earth Dawn is the fantasy prequel to Shadowrun. Uh, however, it has a completely different uh, system, uh, brilliantly designed by Greg Gordon, uh, that basically the principle in both the rule set and the world building was... What if you were to take everything that happens in a D&D game, in what I would now call an F20 game, and have it all make sense and integrate together and have the characters aware of it all? Uh, Yeah, as I understood it, the concept of Earth Dawn was that it provided a in-universe explanation for why there were dungeons and delvers and old men in taverns with hats. Exactly so. Uh, That it posits that uh, a demonic apocalypse has just receded during the demonic apocalypse. Everybody dug under the earth uh, to uh, to create what were called cares or places, uh, subterranean uh, complexes where they waited out the period of time and the demons were rampaging across the, the world, uh, devouring it. And, uh, uh, and Ken, you'll be happy to know there's a fantasy world, of course, that starts with earth uh, because uh, the world of Shadowrun is... Uh, an alternate version of Earth. And so this is a previously unknown prehistory Earth where just happened to be a D&D style world where uh, right. people not only went up in level, but they talked about what level they were. They knew what it was and they, uh, the magic of the world allowed them to progress through uh, their various professions. And, and as they advanced in power, they knew what was happening and they knew why all of a sudden they could take more damage or uh, pick locks better or, or uh, what have you. So uh, they're uh, dungeon delvers who know that they're dungeon delvers. So it doesn't use D&D mechanics. It uses a, a completely different mechanical system, which pays homage to D&D, for example, by making sure it uses every polyhedral. Mm-hmm. But you're not rolling against a, a Thaco. It's not D&D. It is a, a non-F20 game set in an F20 universe using all the tropes of F20. That said, uh, let's, that said, let's move on to the, the question that I'm actually being presented with, which is how would you update it? And without a situation where somehow uh, someone decides to pay me and I clear my calendar to actually uh, complete this task, these are going to be general comments. And my main comment yeah. would be I would be extremely reluctant to monkey with Greg's design uh, because it has a sort of a strong mathematical base behind it. So for a very complicated system where you are supposed to enjoy its complexity, it is unusually elegant. Although you said Greg Gordon right at the front. Yes, exactly. And so uh, one is often tempted to sort of bolt newer ideas onto an older rule system. And either in this case, well, how can we make it more contemporary? Or 
uh, other people want to make a rule set more uh, realistic. So it's like, well, I've looked at this firing missiles into melee rule in D&D, and it doesn't seem realistic. So I'm going to make it uh, so that you're more likely to hit your own people while you're firing into melee. Well, when you do that, are you considering the entire balance that has been created, or are you going to throw things off balance? So is a problem of Earth Dawn that people fail too often and therefore need uh, uh, fate points or, or bennies or, or something like that? And the answer is, I think that you're uh, actually pretty powerful in Earth Dawn, and it doesn't have that whiff factor that uh, an earlier generation of games uh, often had. And although it is complex, it also plays really well, which is even the fans of Shadowrun will say that the original Shadowrun mechanics are somewhat cumbersome. <laughs> I think that they will say that with a note of pride. Yes, exactly. Uh, but that wasn't that sort of uh, gamer macho thing of, you know, we've we've mastered the difficulty of this system by darn it, and you'd better keep out with your non-mathematical models is not part of Earthdawn. So I would tend to just look at, you know, ask the players, first of all, uh, you know, do you feel that you're uh, failing too often and that you're not controlling when you fail? Uh, and the answer might well be no. If you do want to throw something in, you could just say, well, every every session, uh, everybody gets one free reroll of one die of any kind uh, if you don't like that roll. And that's the mm-hmm. you know easiest way to add a luck or, or or hero point system onto anything, right? That's just yeah, is is to make it entirely meta and in uh, and equally distributed amongst all the players. And in terms of uh, narrative control, that is something that can exist outside of rules, right? That you know, yeah, I mean that's table culture. Yeah. So uh, Feng Shui, for example, introduced the idea of narrative control into trad gaming and gave things that were traditionally the GM's prerogative to the players. Well, you can do that with anything, including with Earthdawn. So yeah. uh, you can invite people to describe characters or situations or player uh, places. Uh, and uh, that is something that doesn't require rules uh, rather than just sort of a, a GM advice. So that's that's easily enough done if your players want to do it, if they think that that is within the mission of making it feel like D&D with internal logic, mm-hmm. which was the design goal of Earthdawn, your players may feel, well, we want this to sort of feel more trad. So don't do that. So again, it's something to, to ask them. And in terms of just the complexity of the game, uh, the way to update a game the way someone might today by making it simpler is just to look at the rules that seem annoying to you in play or the ones that you're already ignoring and just acknowledge that you're ignoring them or just yeah. uh, say, to, you know, do we care about the this initiative system or do you, we just want to go with a simpler uh, what have you? Because it seems like what you're saying is that the way to do this mindfully basically involves getting a lot of feedback from a bunch of very different tables of Earth Dawn players that – you can't just sort of go in and say, I, Robin Designer Laws, know how people like to play and like to play this very specific game that it's about a very specific feel um, and will make things so that they will be optimized for my table because the game is is bigger than that. It, it's uh, it, And it has its own aesthetic and its own specific mission. So what you would have to do is go to every player of Earth Dawn and say, 
in what ways did Earth Dawn uh, need a little help off the the land the launch pad, or in what ways did it rub did it chafe you? And once you've got all of that data, if you know forty four percent of them all said, uh, "Yeah, we we didn't really like the, the you know the, the 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 cleric refreshing or whatever it was," then that may be the thing that you sort of tweak. But it's really more in the lines of just nudging it and dinging it a little bit than bolting on wholesale you know mechanics out of fate or uh, powered by the apocalypse or whatever. Yeah, realistically speaking. If you do that, even if you can talk to every Earthdown player, you're not going to get a an actual accurate statistical model of anything. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. <laughs> everybody will have a different pet peeve. Half the people will be horrified when they uh, hear that you're you've been charged with simplifying the thing. Another half of people want it more complicated. And any uh, big overhaul of a rule system, you know, will create sort of a a, a schism. It might be the do tell Robin. <laughs> yes, it might be the the quiet schism of people who just ignore that new rule that you've added. And the temptation often is to add more rules and not take rules away, so that you're just bolting, you know, uh, hero points or whatever it is on on top of what already exists. But the job at your own table, you know, everybody with a complex system kind of upgrades and modifies their system just by ignoring the things they personally find uh, cumbersome. Right. It's just. It's, it's more tuning than it is anything else. Right. And probably the thing that most people object to in any complex system, and one of the things about Earthdawn is that there's a, it's a calculated system where characters can be right or wrong, which is very annoying as a freelancer, um, <laughs> that uh, often the character generation in older games takes too long, that it assumes that Well, I mean, if only someone had made a, char- a piece of character handler software you go. for Earthdawn 2nd Edition, yes. then we'd be, go- then we'd be uh, floating on a cloud. Right. One might argue that the the need for character hand, handling software might might be sort of a, a tip off, but again, uh, people might prefer just to have a tool, or it might be that the thing to update about any a game of that era, including much less elegant ones, is to uh, have more kits that you can sort of quickly bang together to create fun, playable characters uh, without. Uh, spending six hours of homework time. Yeah, I mean, uh, the sort of pre-solved uh, algorithmic templates is uh, it, it's strong tech, and it's been used in a lot of different games. And perhaps that would be all that New Earth Dawn would need would be a bunch of oh, here's how to build a good uh, gnome assassin. Uh, right, it might, it might just need a a book of pregens, <laughs> mm-hmm. a big fat book of beautiful, beautiful pregens of of pre of beautiful pregens, or you know, just a. You know, um, a, a loving gloss. Okay. I, I think since we've plugged the original question askers product, that has to be some sort of unique Ouroboros, even for us. So that surely must signal the end of a segment. Uh, well, then let's see what other segment is coming up at the other side of this commercial. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. 
Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that his bosses at Time Incorporated use to send him back into history, which he will then proceed to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes mutilate it. Or sometimes he'll just get a request, look at what the alternative timeline would be, and go, nope, we're better off with this one. And uh, Phil Masters... Uh, he's returning quickly with another question because uh, the last question he got to ask was shared with a whole bunch of other people. But he has this question to his very own self uh, as he asks, would Ken care to go back to Lutzen in 1632 and save Gustavus Adolphus from his early death? So uh, this uh, raises the next question for the rest of the listeners, which was, who was Gustavus Adolphus? He was the king of Sweden from 1611 to 1632. He led Sweden to victory in the Thirty Years' War, and some later military historians call him the father of modern warfare, perhaps not the favorite thing on his resume that he would point out because he was also an economic modernizer. He uh, modernized trade, uh, promoted education. He encouraged land reform in places that he took over, although I'm not sure if he did so in Sweden. So, Ken... Uh, the Golden King, the Lion of the North. Do you want to save him? I do. Um, and for a couple of reasons. One, the Thirty Years' War is awful. And any chance to end it early, because what it ended with was everyone agreeing that you could run your own country's religion and that there were countries now. And that's what it accomplished after killing a third of Germany. It basically did almost nothing to shift the balance of power except confirm France as a great power, which everyone knew it would be once it stopped uh, having civil wars all the time. And Sweden had a brief opportunity to basically become uh, sort of sit at the table of who gets to run Germany. And given who wound up running Germany, why not? Let's let Sweden give a shot. <laughs> they seem like good folks. I've never met a, a, a bad Swede. They, they, they seem lovely. So, well, they, yeah, they, they keep I'm, the bad ones at home. And there, many of them are purged by Gustavus Adolphus. He, he, uh, one of the things that he did do, uh, in the course of modernizing his country and his economy was attempt to, uh, hamper the power of the great barons of Sweden, because that is what all centralizing monarchs of the Enlightenment era did. And so, guess what? If you're going up against the, the, the powerful barons, in some cases, that can lead you to an excessively absolutist state, as it does. Uh, but on many other cases, it at the very least breaks the power of barons, which is a, a step in the right direction for the middle classes and the peasantry, by and large. So, he, he did encourage uh, land reform in Sweden. I, th I think he encouraged it mostly by having a, a no tolerance policy about um, uh, getting on his bad side. So landlord reform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he reforms in landlords. Let's just say that, that owning land and being angry at uh, J uh, Gustavus Adolphus was not a good combination. 
and he was uh, a, a, a great commander in the sense that, for example, the Swedish forces were almost the only forces in the Thirty Years' War that fed themselves as opposed to just looting the countryside as they went through. Now, I'm not saying the Swedish never looted the countryside, but they didn't have to loot the countryside. They they at least had advanced to voluntary looting, which is a step in the right direction. Uh, and he did invent a sort of combined arms with mobile artillery, which was something that no one had thought to do. Uh, or had done particularly successfully. I guess I, uh, the Ziska did it in the rebellions against the Austrians a while earlier, but that was much harder, and he had to use ox carts. Gustavus Pioneer's horse artillery, which is much faster. As, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest threat that a newly dominant Sweden in Germany poses to everything right and proper is that Delaware stays Swedish, and frankly, I'm okay with that. If I have to give up Delaware to... Um, uh, <laughs> prevent a series of mass deaths in Germany, I'll take it. But where will the Amtrak trains go without Delaware? Well, they'll probably have to go through Delaware, but they'll have to stop at the border and get a cool three lion uh, stamp on your passport. Right. There may be dumplings on the trains. Exactly. You, you'll get meatballs uh, when the Excella stops in, in Wilmington. It'll be great. Or Christian Stad or whatever it was called back in the day. And the other thing is saving his life at Lutzen is not super hard unless you are one of those uh, people who believe that uh, Gustavus was assassinated by his own men, see previous discussion about bad barons, the uh, notion being that Prince Francis Albert of Saxe-Lohenburg uh, had basically sold out Gustavus uh, to the, the hated Habsburgs and um, uh, assassinated him while standing in a big cloud of gun smoke and just shot him right in the head. As it was, he was actually leading a charge like an idiot and got himself uh, cut off from the rest of his forces and got uh, gunned down by a little knot of Habsburg resistance, which is the sort of thing that even I, uh, unmilitary me, could perhaps give him the uh, the helpful advice to not go there. Right. So the pep talk is basically, hey, innovator of modern warfare, you know, one thing is going to be part of modern warfare is the smartest guy doesn't also lead the charge. Yeah. Just... Just try that one. See how that goes. Yeah. Um, send a, a, a an equally valiant, but uh, perhaps more expendable person. To, maybe to someone that. who's got a bunch of land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A landlord you would like to reform. Right. And, and so uh, his his death is, um, you don't want to say it, it's it's sheer chance, in the, except in the sense that everyone's death on a battlefield is basically sheer chance. But it is a, a kind of an avoidable blunder. Um, and it's not a single rifle shot out of nowhere. It, it's a decision that is made that could be unmade. So stopping, uh, and he, he even won the battle despite dying in it. Uh, Sweden still won at Lutzen and then continued, the Swedish army continued to win battles in the war, but without Gustavus there as sort of the, the prime mover, his death left a power vacuum that was filled by Richelieu and France, who, of course, came in on the quote-unquote Protestant side of the war, mostly to do uh, the Habsburgs in the eye, but almost all to uh, aggrandize France at the Habsburgs' expense in uh, the Low Countries. So the upshot is Protestantism in Germany is no uh, is no uh, worse off and is probably better off with uh, Gustavus alive and Lion of the Northing it around. And certainly uh, the future of Germany is better off if a country that is not a weak, feckless Austria uh, has a chance to maybe um, uh, uh, influence the the northern commercial half of the country. If you have Hams, Hamburg and Lübeck and Wismar reorienting themselves 
uh, onto the ocean out into, um, uh, into a, a, a thriving modern commercial polity instead of the rattled carcass of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, that's, that's all to the good. And I would, I would gamble a stamp on that. So, uh, apart from meatballs on the Acela, uh, what are the, the big macro effects? Of, I mean, of, uh, another ha- helpful macro effect is that it also sort of, uh, pins Russia's ears back a little bit. Uh, as we all know from a, a long previous segment on the Battle of Poltava, um, uh, it is the, uh, feckless Charles the 12th was also quite a military mind, although not the sort of military mind that tells you don't march into the Ukraine, uh, got Sweden into a war with Russia. And, you know, it, it was a good, strong fight for a while. If you add to Sweden's demographic base, the North German plane, uh, you have a real shot at keeping Russia, um, uh, a, a civilized member of Europe and, uh, not, the sort of rapacious bear that it became under the uh, Romanovs and then under the uh, the Soviets. So is there a, a scenario that involves our uh, uh, characters uh, interacting with Gustavus? Um, I think uh, you can begin, if you're curious, uh, with the uh, fun novel series that is now maybe a little less fun and more of an onerous chore, but is still often a good read, uh, the Ring of Fire series. Uh, which begins with a, an, a, a West Virginia coal mining town magically teleported into the middle of the Thirty Years' War in, as it turns out, 1632. And our American heroes do indeed save Gustavus Adolphus's life and do indeed go to knock Europe all uh, a tizzy. So if you are looking at time travelers meet Gustavus Adolphus, there's already a lovely novel for you right there. If you are playing characters and adventurers of the time. Gustavus Adolphus, among the other things that he was a fan of, was having sort of elite units and small groups of uh, dedicated cavalry in his hip pocket that he could send off and and do uh, what we would consider special operations missions. So your your team can be commandos who use a combination, one assumes, of magic and uh, and sword play to to do the bidding of the of the Lion of the North. He becomes a great uh, patron. His daughter Christina, of course, is one of the most wonderfully eccentric characters in uh, Swedish royal history, and the fact that she will probably inherit even if he doesn't die at Lutzen means that the centralizing tendencies of the Swedish monarchy have a natural break in them because Queen Christina is more interested in combing horses and collecting art than in running Sweden. So uh, she will uh, make a, a fine um, uh, interrupt there. So other than looking like uh, Greta Garbro, uh, what were her eccentricities? Well, one of her eccentricities uh, was that, uh, and, and this was, you know, an eccentricity more in 1640 than it is now, was that she was almost certainly uh, either gay or bi and didn't really want to meet a bunch of stupid European royals. And you can't really blame her. Uh, even if she, even the flawlessly straight Queen Elizabeth didn't want to meet a bunch of European royals. So Queen Christina had a similar thing. Also, she has a very mercurial uh, temper, which I think shows up in most of the historical records, including possibly being responsible for the looting of Prague based on just being mad at Prague that day. So <laughs> she doesn't have a big strategic uh, mind, but maybe if her very strategically minded dad had survived uh, to let her grow up with him, she might have picked a little more of that up and had might not have looted Prague unless it had really gotten up her nose instead of just, ah, Prague, 
the heck with it. And is there a, a knock-on effect of an unlooted prog? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, to, be, to begin with, um, the chances of a, if not Protestant, then almost certainly non-Habsburg prog go way up, even once, uh, uh, if, if you assume that Gustavus ends the Thirty Years' War 15 years early and without slaughtering the rest of Germany, uh, there is a, a big chance that a Protestant uh, Bohemia uh, becomes a kingdom, maybe under uh, the Habsburg mercenary general Wallenstein, who was also very, very competent, but also kind of just wanted to be king of Bohemia. So uh, that's it, it, another interesting possibility that you have basically Czech nationalism uh, beginning 200 years early, and that you know causes flowerings of art and culture and also uh, creates another bulwark against expansionism by either a bunch of surly Germans or a bunch of surly Russians. If you get uh, the Czech Republic into a going concern in 1640 instead of 1940. Well, um, now that we have art and culture uh, flowering, I think we can uh, pat ourselves on the back, uh, you in particular, for another time mission well executed. And we can uh, exit either uh, with or without a time machine uh, and then return a whole week from now with another exciting brand new episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from world-scourging demons by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. Hyperlexic. John Buckley. And Carl Schmidt. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.